Welcome back to VIV. This is our 10th episode special. This episode, we've invited people who were very instrumental in getting VIV off the ground. In this panel, we've discussed previous episodes and whether or not 2020 has brought meaningful change within the industry. We also wanted to let you know that VIV will be taking a hiatus for a few months. But while we're shaping the future of the platform, we'd still like to hear from you. If you have any suggestions, feedback or ideas, you can email us on visibleinvisuals at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram under the handle visible underscore visuals. My name's Tanya J. Scott and I am part of the panel today. And I'm Hodden Abdi and I'll be hosting your panel today. Um, And let's begin with the intros. Hello, everyone. I'm Mohamed. Um, I am a senior animator at Lighthouse Studios in Kilkenny. Hi, Mo. Let's go with Paula. So, hi, my name is Paula, and I've been working in production for um, the past 10 years, and now I'm taking a break. Um, and I'm, I'm still working in animation, but I just put production aside and really enjoying that, actually. Hi, Paula. And um, Bimpy. Hello, everybody. I'm Bimpy, and I'm a junior concept artist at Industrial Light and Magic, and I've been in visual effects now for five years. Hi, Bimpy. So this is our recap sort of episode, just um, catching up with some familiar faces. Um, so let's begin with the first question. Um, do you think that there's been any significant difference between, uh, like, in how diversity and inclusion has been received in the animation and VFX since 2020? <laughs> I don't mind answering. In long short, yes, because everyone's talking about it now. Um, everyone's talking about it, everyone's paying attention. Although on the other side of that, I have heard from some people where nothing is being done whatsoever, but there does seem to now be this kind of rushed of, okay, what can we do? What can be done? And Every time I don't watch TV, but I use the YouTube and I found that every YouTube ad that comes up now seems to be very visually diverse, like adverts that before would have mainly been just like maybe white characters. I'm now seeing black and Asian characters kind of in these kind of roles. So it's like it it feels quite clear that there's been this kind of like, okay, let's start hiring, like visually hiring kind of actors and actresses to kind of fill these roles in this aspect. So I feel like on the kind of visuals that we're seeing, there's been like this um, sudden shift and uptake. And I think that some of that is starting to happen behind the scenes as well. And there are kind of a lot of discussions that are going on, um, at least from what I can see in terms of, okay, well, what can we do to kind of now really start to shift the dial on so many aspects? Um, I think my main thing would just be that this needs to be something that's long term. And as well as kind of making, as long as kind of making all these like changes or whatnot, we also need to be still having discussions about what the issues were in the first place and how those issues still continue to be issues and how we can continue to build for the long term instead of just making this kind of a short sighted thing with let's 
quickly kind of scoop up all of the people of color talent um, and start using them now. It needs to be like, okay, how are we rebuilding structures? How are we engaging with students, younger people? How are we engaging with parents? How are we engaging with governments? Because we also need to be engaging with governments as well, because money is still being consistently stripped away from the arts and the creative spaces, which is going to have a knock-on effect in various shapes and forms. So there needs to still be deeper discussions. It can't just all be surface level. Tanya? Yeah, I was just going to pick up on that because it's, it's funny because part of the reason why obviously um, Bimpy is here is because she she's been on all the other panels, she's just been awesome. But like, I remember like when I wrote that article for Squiggly, like, was it the end of 2019? And it still seemed to be like something that nobody was really wanting to talk about or acknowledge that it was happening. And I remember Bimpy and I were like, we, we met up for the first time at the BFI and we were having a chat over wine and it was just like, it was like therapy. Like we were just saying all this stuff to each other because it was like, well, where do you, who do you bring this stuff to? Who do you talk to about this? And it definitely feels like people are more engaged with it and more interested in it. But I definitely agree with Bimpy in that. A lot of it seems like it's surface level. A lot of it seems like a very sort of shallow understanding of what the issues are. And they, I do still see a lot of people sort of turning to people of colour for all the answers which is not really helpful because it's like you're not really engaging with the conversation. You're just being like, well, it's like someone helping you with your homework or cheat. You're copying somebody else's homework, basically. That's essentially what it feels like. Um, so I do think that that is a big problem. And I think, yeah, like, I, I mean, I'm part of the Screen Skills Council now. And I think there seems to be a real um, genuine desire to improve things in the UK film industry just generally. But I think we are at that point now where it's like, at times it can fit, definitely feel like tokenism. Um, and I'm not sure how we sort of juggle that, but um, yeah, but I mean, it's good to see people taking an interest in it at least. And Paula? I, yeah, I, I agree with everything that you guys have said. I think there's been a reaction uh, from studios in, and an interest in raising questions, talking about things like uh, taking little actions, like, you know, asking people whether they would want, like an example, whether they want to put their pronouns in their email signature um, as support for people who may not feel that confident in, in you know, stating um, their gender. Um, but I do think that this is a marathon and I think there's people... Like just from stories that I've been hearing from other people that work in other studios, not particularly in the one I'm working now, but um, of studios wanting to take the fast route. Um, and just, it's really embarrassing and horrible, but just asking, hey, do you know any diverse people that we can hire in our production? And I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> like, yes, this is changes that we need to do. Yes, it requires a time of thinking. Yes, it requires to study the roots of, you know, of the issues that we have and then, you know, come with solutions from the root, not just like the surface sort of thing. But the fact that there are studios that are contacting, you know, people to say, do you know any diverse people that we, you know, that's just a little bit shocking. And I think we need to be very careful. And I think um, if we want to make a change, it has to be a research you know, and thought through process uh, in order to be able to make a significant change. So because you use the word significant, I don't think significant changes have happened yet, 
I think we, we're just starting the conversation and it's a marathon and, you know, because it's a problem that has been ingrained in our society for so long, I don't expect to see significant change anytime soon. I think um, the way I see uh, my little contribution into this is not for my generation, it's for the ones that come five years, 10 years after me. Um, because, you know, we have to start from, you, from like what Bimpe was saying, from, from schools, from education, for conversations with parents, and, and, and that takes years um, of planning. Um, but yeah, so, so there, are, there are conversations happening and it's a hot topic at the moment, let's put it that way. But it is a marathon and it will be very interesting, interesting to see which studios are going to be running this until the end, basically. Well. Yeah, just to echo on, on that, like, I don't want to be pessimistic because there has been support shown. Like, it's been quite lovely to see how people are open to understanding and um, have the conversations and make new connections with with people of color and stuff so that they can there's a there's a bigger pool of people who can get hired into the industry but I am scared that this is only for now you know I'm scared that you know companies are just like you know racing for the chance to like post on like social media like oh look look at look at our employees look how many of them are from color and stuff and then it's like are they going to be on the next production it's like what oh i don't know like you know it's just it's very much like i want to believe but i don't know i feel very pessimistic at this moment about like how it is going to go forward because because like um it feels like it feels like 2020 it was a it was a big push and a big force and a big backlash and like no this isn't this isn't acceptable this has been going on for so long and stuff and that's made the companies have to be like all right we'll change you know but it's have they really understood or are they just trying to like tide everyone over and when everyone quiets down a bit is that going to be like yeah we've got to continue this on so i feel like it's going to be it's going to be a continuous push as well because I do feel like there are going to be companies who are going to slip back into their old ways and stuff or keep asking ignorant questions. I mean, like when Paolo just said, like companies asking, like, do you know, do you know anyone, do you know any people of color to hire and stuff? I mean, that in itself is still an issue. You know, the fact that that's quite embarrassing to be honest, actually, that like you, you only know a select number of people and none of them of any other are are mostly white or something so I do feel like yeah it's going to be a continuous um, push from our side as well as them as well just to go back to yeah what Mo and Paolo were saying it's going to be like that word significant again yeah I think is really really important I think Paolo's right that we're not going to see that significant change at the moment it's it's too big to just come through straight away and yeah it is completely a marathon and again as Mo said it'll be interesting to kind of see who's still riding with us so to speak in terms of companies and how much they're still willing to do how much they're still actually willing to invest in terms of money and time and by investment I don't just mean we're donating five million to so and so like to literally really be investing in people in terms of mentorship in terms of scholarships in terms of providing things like materials like um 
like computers, whatever people actually need, especially if we're talking about educating younger people as well. Like how can we really, really support people and really use our money to use that effectively? But there's also the worry that, well, I think we're going to keep playing this kind of game of, people thinking the work has been done now, like, okay, well, we've seen an uptake by 2% of people of color, people, LGBT community and so forth. Like there's 2% uptake, our work is done. Look at us now, we, we've got, instead of having only three people of color, we've now got six people of color, like woohoo, job is done. Like, no, it's, I, I, there's, gonna, there's gonna be that constant pat on the back that I think people give themselves and think, okay, the work is done now, so we don't need to do any more, or, oh, well, you've got what you've wanted now, what more do you want? And I think there's still gonna need to be that reminder that like, no, this still isn't the way that things should be, which again, which is why the education portion of it again is so important and people need to be educating themselves. And as Tanya said, they shouldn't be looking towards us to give the answer all the time. We've already been doing all the work. We're still constantly doing all the work. Then it's now time for other people, for non-people of colour to kind of do this work for themselves to start making these changes for themselves as well. So, because it's going to be beneficial to everyone. We know statistically all this stuff is beneficial to absolutely everyone. And it's still, I still find it really interesting as well that it, it, because a lot of us have been saying stuff for a while, but again, it wasn't until last year that people decided like, okay, but let's we're going to listen now or let's do something about it now as if it was this sudden new revelation I always have to remind myself not to be kind of re-triggered <laughs> by that <laughs> I'm just like okay everyone in their own time I guess but it's still yeah even with this discovery obviously there's still lots of learning to be done but some people still aren't actually even willing to kind of do that work for themselves but um but yeah it's completely a marathon not like yeah it's not a sprint so Tanya yeah, I mean, there's so many points I can pick up on on that. I think, like, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, like, I, I was thinking about this the other day and it goes, it's a lot of it is, like, to do with our mental health as well, like, not just, you know, people of colour, women, LGBTQ+, because it's like, I mean, I have friends who have these conversations with me and they generally tend to be, like, cis men. And, like, it's exhausting because you're just, you're having these sort of debates with them about things that, for us, are, like, basic everyday fact like you know like as a woman like there are rules about where I go what I do how I behave how I present myself and then to have to debate that again in your spare time with somebody and it's like I understand that you're figuring this out but for me I had to figure this out like from puberty like this isn't new to me this isn't new to any of the rest of us and I think it's important to have patience for those people but then simultaneously I think it's important that those people have empathy for the fact that you know these conversations are really draining they're really really exhausting and we're not always up talking about them and I think that is that is essentially the point because I understand this is this is a bit of a tightrope like when we talk about people approaching other people of colour for the more diverse crew you know like I guess how do you if these people aren't on your radar how do you find them how do you source them without looking like you're just you're just buying into like tokenism but then simultaneously, like there have been some conversations I've had where since this is all kicked off, people have taken more of an interest in me um, since this has become a thing. And you're just thinking like, all those times I emailed you and you completely ignored my emails. And suddenly now you're in the same email where you're telling me you're looking for a diverse crew. You're asking me if I want a job. And it's like, I am qualified. 
I am more than qualified. You don't need to make this about my ethnicity because that is also part of the issue, is the fact that you're not willing to give me an opportunity until it suits you, basically. And it's, it is that thing as well where it's, from what we've seen on our end, I think, from visible visuals, but also from what we've heard from other people, a lot of these things still seem to be tackled only at junior level. And it's like, I was walking home the other day and I was just thinking about my working life and I was like, I have never worked for a woman of colour, ever. As somebody senior to me, I've never had a female woman of, you know, woman of colour as my boss, as my director, even, even as my producer. And that is dreadful. <laughs> like, why is that a thing? Why is that? What, that is so absent. I can't even think of somebody in that position, you know? And I think, you know, while we're all talking about, oh, my crew is... 30% this minority group, whatever, you know, okay, but how many of them at junior level and how many of those are you going to give an opportunity to to be more than just your little underling, basically? And I think that's like a really big problem that I don't think has improved, actually. I don't think I've seen much of a push to actually address the, the imbalance in senior roles, which is something that I've I find quite irritating personally. Paula? I think um, how to solve these issues is a very complex thing that, you know, we're not going to be able to sort out just by talking to um, other peers in animation. Like we've, you know, there's been a series of talks that you've done in visual and visuals. We've raised the issues. And I think now is the time to start researching into solutions outside our industry, uh, calling experts that might be experienced in, you know, in, in sociologists and HR and, and how do we solve this issue? Because obviously, you know, we work in animation, but I think this goes beyond animation. And I think maybe, you know, moving forward, like we should start talking more about potential solutions and, and, and see if we can get expertise from outside our industry to, you know, to get, um, uh, yeah, just to, to just get, to start, you know, building into the, um, into solving these issues that we're having. And I think um, people are jumping into the whole, let's make the studio more diverse. And I just keep saying, is about inclusion as well. It really truly is. And how much of your profit, because all of these companies are not charities. Studios are not built to be charities. Studios are businesses that are built for profit, like most of you know, businesses in this capitalistic society that we live in. And, and the question is like, how much of your profit are you, are you willing to invest in this inclusion? And in this, uh, you know, support for your employees and making sure that your crew is okay. And, and that's, that's a very difficult question to answer. But ultimately, I think it all boils to that. And just so you, just like as a little example of something that uh, a colleague of mine uh, was talking about, we were talking about this last week. Um, we have all been in a global pandemic, global pandemic, you know, unprecedented situation. And um, a lot of us, our families are not in the country that we live in, which means that we spend a year and a half and it's going to be potentially two years before we can see our loved ones. And there comes 
you know, the line producer of this studio where my friend is working and you have to take your holidays. And my friend is like, no, because I'm saving every single day that I accrue every month, you know, to, to go and see my family whenever I can go and see my family. And I had a very similar um, chat with the production peeps in the project that I'm working. And they were like, but, you know, it's, it's very difficult. You know, if everybody takes holidays at the same time, we're going to have to close down the studio. And this is where inclusion comes into place and well-being comes into place. You have a workforce that is mostly from abroad and everybody wants to see their families because we miss them and we haven't seen them in like a year and a half. If you have to close the studio, start planning. Start putting a plan in place. You know what I mean? Like I've been a line producer and I honestly, when people want to take holidays at the same time, I just want to break down and cry because it's very difficult because all your schedules are always so tight. It's, bit, like, it's just so difficult to do. But I know it can be done if you plan ahead because I worked in a project where the producer turned around and he said, all the crew have to go on a research trip, research trip for a week in, a, in three months time. And I thought I was having a heart attack. I thought I was having a heart attack. And I was like, how on earth am I gonna do this? And by planning, by suffering, and by talking to clients, suppliers, everybody, we made it happen. It was difficult, but it, we made it happen. And, and that was just a research trip that if I had said, my gosh, we really cannot do this now. Like, can we do it in six months time? Because we really cannot do this. Uh, but I actually wanted to go on that research trip. So I made it happen as well. Um, but yeah, so it's like that, that thing to me, that, that thought of like, but the studio will close down if you all take holidays. I'm not taking holidays to lay in the sun in Magaluz and get pissed. No, I'm taking holidays because I have, you don't know how difficult it's been to be away from every single person that I love in this life. And Zoom calls is not the same. I live on my own. I've been for a year and a half, I've been on my own because I happen to be in a country where I don't know many people because I just moved here before lockdown. And so for you to tell me to take my holidays now to stay at the ceiling because there's not much I can do, that's not, no, like that's not accepting that half of the workforce that you have in the studios from abroad and that we are really eager to go and see our families. And everything is possible if you plan for it. I swear, like that's always been my thing. Um, I worked with a technical director years ago in Manchester and she taught me this and she's amazing. She's the best technical director I ever had and I love her to bits. And she said, Paula, everything is possible if you plan ahead. And, and, and it's true, it is true. You can make things happen if you, if you plan ahead. We can make the change if we plan ahead. You know, we can allow people to go on holidays, maybe in batches. Maybe these people from this project go this week, you know, something like that by communicating, by talking. And, you know, so, so for me, it's like, yes, you know, we're talking about diversity, we're talking about inclusion, but then when it comes to make the big effort of how are we gonna support our workforce from abroad, all foreigners, you know, to be able to see their families in this very unprecedented situation, that's when cracks start to show. And that in those little actions is where the work has to be put, is where the work has to happen. 
I am more than happy to support my, you know, my colleagues in putting my pronoun in my email and that stuff. But that's such a little thing to do. That's such a little effort, you know, that I, it's like, oh, I put my pronoun on my email. Big pat on the back. No, no. It's in these actions where people really need the companies to engage in something that is so big and we so need it, which is like time with our families and loved ones, that that's when you start seeing the, this is a business for profit. And I'm not sure I'm willing to compromise that profit for the well-being of my workers. And I know this is happening in many, many places because obviously being Spanish, a lot of my people that I seem to click more, you know, my colleagues in, in the UK, they are, they are, you know, they're from France, Portugal and other countries and, and we're all in the same boat in this. And from a line producer perspective, I can understand that this is a, a nightmare for someone that has a deadline and needs people to work. But let's start talking about it and let's start communicating about it and let's start to be proactive about it and make significant change to support the mental health, the inclusion of, you know, our workers and see where we land, basically. Yeah, I was going to say, um, so I might have said this before on another panel we've done, but basically, so... I've worked in the industry for about eight years now and I've worked in like, I want to say six different studios and I've worked with 20 different black people and I can literally name all of them throughout that whole time, right? I think the majority of that was in one specific company and that was in central London and then everyone else, everywhere else has just been literally one or two spread out that's insane the, and also the fact that i know every single one of them by name is also insane like i don't think anyone really knows everyone who's worked in the company they've worked in because that's a ton of people most of these places usually have like the smaller ones usually have between like 30 or 50 but if you're working in a big studio that's about like 150 to 200 people so you probably don't know everyone by name but the fact that I can remember specifically and name every single black person I've worked with since I started is quite insane um and I like that's the kind of stuff that needs to end because it's like every place I've worked I've, I've loved I've loved the production and I've loved working there as in like there's been something cool going on it's been like oh this is gonna be great to work on and stuff but when you put your foot through the door and you're just like yep it's just me or like you know like you 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 go upstairs and you see someone else like oh okay I'm not alone like that's not a mentality I should have I shouldn't be excited that I see another black person in the studio that's that's insane that I've said that sentence can you imagine if I was like oh man another white person do you know what I mean like it's just like there's like it's so rare to just see black people in a studio that I'm so excited when I see another one, I get to know them, I know their name and stuff, and that's a contact. But it's like, that should just, that needs to be normalized so much, you know? And then um, that absolutely adds to your mental health. Like, do you know how bad it is when it's just like, yeah, there's no one I really know I can talk to around here that has to who knows what I'm going through and stuff like um uh, I don't know like I was looking for Afro-Caribbean restaurants in um in uh Kilkenny uh last week couldn't find any 
right and then i remember i was telling my i was, I was telling my mom i was like mom i want some nigerian food so much and i i can't find any i haven't had anything for a while i just wanted some i just wanted some takeout i don't want to cook or anything like that and it was just like so i don't have that i can't i'm not seeing visually people of my culture or, or anything here and it's just like um it's a lot that like takes takes its toll on you every single day you know um and i don't think people i don't think people um understand how big of an in- impact that is for you you know like especially with animation a lot of people move around for their jobs you know it's usually like a year <laughs> sorry i've just seen you laugh it's usually like a year in one studio and then you move to another studio and stuff and people are willing to relocate because they love their job and it's quite passionate and stuff like that and obviously every place you move isn't isn't going to be the same as the last but it really does I think people need to empathize with how hard it is like what Paolo was saying how hard it is for people to give up that culture and that family and stuff to move to a new area to move to a new sorry to move to a new area and then just you know basically start from scratch and it's like how many years am I going to do this for you know like um after a while it becomes a lot harder to move and to settle um it becomes a lot harder to keep moving and stuff so where are you going to settle and um if you decide oh well my family and my culture and all that is far more important than moving and stuff then you know you're limited to one area you know and it just it just it's just a bit frustrating. Um, I mean, it's changed a little bit now because we're all working from home. It, we've seen like companies are, you know, much more willing to allow people to work remotely than they were before, which is lovely. And I'm hoping that that continues. Um, but um... <laughs> you've you put me I'm off sorry. so much. Oh I'm God. sorry. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. No, I'm laughing. Okay, let's just take a time out. Oh yeah. my god, you put what was it that I said? What was um, Bimpy? Oh, this I guess this depends on if Mo's bit gets like edited, but it was just to kind of and there were two points. One of them was just to kind of riff on one of the things he said about the mental health of it all and that situation. Because it is extremely draining, especially like having grown up in London and then you walk into a situation where you are the only person of like anything and we do that on a daily basis for certain things anyway but we spend most of our time at home or at work or if there's other engagements and other engagements so you're you're spending like a large majority of your day for the week being the only person of something and that is very exhausting because as Mo kind of already alluded to like you kind of there are parts of yourself that you maybe then have to like close off or cut off because people may not understand it or you kind of feel nervous about it or you start to code switch or you worry a lot. I know that I worried a hell of a lot about, um, cause at one point when I was the only black person in my company, um, you worry a lot about what that will mean and what that looks like. And I know I've mentioned this in the podcast before that you carry that quite heavily because there's that worry of, okay, well, if I'm the only black person, I have to do well at this because that could potentially mean that another person who looks like me won't get this opportunity again if I don't do it correctly because it's a very real, very real fear. And it's most likely very true in some aspects that people will take these certain things and it, and base their judgment off of that. We see that all the time in what happens with stereotypes in films and TV and all that kind of stuff. So I know that that was something that I worried about a hell of a lot 
there's also the questions that come up in regards to your name and oh that's a funny name this that and the other and you just have to you put up with so many ridiculous things and ridiculous questions ridiculous like microaggressions that you know that other people aren't <laughs> other people that most likely tend to be white aren't having to kind of deal with on a daily basis and aren't even recognizing or understanding that you're having to deal with and even if you do raise them at times people then start to call that into question and again maybe gaslight you in certain ways that kind of that start to make you start to think what like am I actually going crazy that kind of thing and so that can be really really exhausting um, and then also just to then caveat slightly back to something Paola was saying about um, kind of companies and what they can do in terms of solutions I think firstly I think like it's, it's a wider systemic thing in general. Like it's a massive society issue in general. It's a massive world issue in general. And so obviously all of that trickles down into these smaller microcosms, which because it essentially is just a small microcosm, not that it makes it any less important, but what like it's kind of like so above, so below. So what happens within these structures has the immediate impact on what how we exist within our workspaces and so like she's right as well like it needs to be broader we need to be having these conversations broader and those are happening but they happen in isolation and people still kind of have this idea that they're all separate things but they are cross-sectional they need to be cross-sectional when I mentioned talking about governments earlier in regards to how we're able to help students that that definitely needs to be a next stage at, later down the line because as I said funding is consistently being cut and in the creative spaces, which has a direct impact on what students can do and what then students have access to. But then also who can also afford to then do certain things at things like university level. And we already know the impact that that has, especially for people of color. So it needs to be broader conversations because it will be impacting how we show up on a daily basis. But then also thinking about, okay, yeah, what is companies are kind of wanting to say, well, now we wanna be more diverse. They need to be transparent. They need to be transparent about what their main intention is. They need to be transparent about what their companies look like now and what their actual aims and goals are. Because if they don't, if they're not willing to be transparent about it, if they're not willing to kind of say this is a priority and this is not a priority, then everything they're doing is surface level. And it's also rocky foundation. It's not anything that's going to be built to last because they haven't been honest about what it is that their intention is and how things currently look and what it is that they're actually willing to change. I would personally much rather companies say, okay, well, our intention is still the bottom line, but then we want to make um, diversity and inclusion like our second priority. Ideally, you'd want it to be the reversal, but we know that that's not going to happen living in capitalist societies. But at least if they're willing to say that, if they're just willing to be open and honest, then at least everybody knows where they stand. And then we can really start to work around things. We can really start to put structures in place, but also we can show, and we know this, and we've got the statistics that show having a more diverse and inclusive workforce adds to the bottom line anyway. It makes more money for companies. And we all know that that's what they're really aiming towards so just be open about that be open about what that is and be open about what your intention is so we can work within that it, it's trickier and if anything it's a bit more insulting if companies are kind of saying well you're our priority when we know that that's not true when we know that the output still isn't showing that when we know as Paula said that they're not willing to make these plans and adjustments for the fact that okay there are people that 
have that aren't natively from certain countries that haven't been able to be with their families. There are people that celebrate particular religious holidays that aren't taken into consideration. We only take into consideration one, usually just one religious holiday, which tends to be Christmas. It doesn't account for the many other holidays that are important to people's daily lives. They aren't given any days off or any of that kind of thing to support that. So companies need to be more engaging and more transparent and more aware of these things and having these discussions and be open to kind of making the necessary adjustments if they really are about diversity and inclusion. Paola, did you have your hand up? I, I, I just loved, you know, what you said about transparency because it is, it is very difficult. It is very difficult. And I, I have seen situations where you know, a studio, a studio pitches itself, these are our values, and then on the everyday basis, they are, they are not their values at all. Um, I do think that people work better when you give them a well-structured system and, you know, and, and supported system. And I think people work better in an environment where they know where they are. I would respect much more a company that says, this is who we are, we don't allow for this and we allow for this and this is how we operate, that a company that is constantly telling me that there's something that they are not because you're very confused in it. And at the end of the day, it's a workplace. I need to know, like, I, and, I, and I know this is because I, I come from, maybe it's because I come from production and, and I love structures and I love information being clear and linear and all that stuff. But I get very confused when, when I've been in places that said, oh, this is our ethos. And then on an everyday basis, it's, it's completely different. Because especially if you're a, a person in management, because I was in a situation where I was trying to apply that ethos as much as I could uh, for the well-being of the people that I was working with, whether they believe it or not, I really struggled. So I felt I was the person that was caught up in the ethos that the company was um, selling me and then trying to apply it to a structure that was not based in that ethos at all. And I was responsible for an awful lot of people in that project. And I, I got very confused. So I think I would have been more efficient if I knew where I stood. But every day I was trying to find out where is it that we were standing with things? And it was just, you know, a lot of years of that. And, and I think transparency doesn't, I mean, there's, there's things that obviously they're not going to tell you because, you know, they belong in, in, in offices and, um, and for upper management only. Yeah. But I think it's very, I think, I think it's key uh, to say, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. This is what is allowed in the studio. This is what not, not allowed in this studio. And then it's your choice whether you want to work for us or not. And that's it, as a simple as that. But I think people are getting very confused as well with all of this. Um, and people for, definitely forget that it's a workplace. It's not a place to be lectured about who I vote for, what I eat, where do I buy my groceries? Uh, because, uh, you know, I, I, I haven't experienced it myself, but again, I have people that are like, my goodness, this is like, it's such an intense uh, culture of telling you how to have you live your life. And I'm like, but why? It's a workplace. <laughs> it's a workplace. You live your life the way you want to live it. And it is, hopefully, it's a way of living your life that is respectful to everybody else that you have around yourself. But it's, those things are, are getting very confused and I think it's so important. And uh, there's a lot of statement writing. I don't go to social media very often, but sometimes um, 
I go to LinkedIn to look for people to work with and stuff. And, and you see all these statements from all the broadcasters. This is what we care about. You know, this is how we value mental health. And I was like, so why are your schedules and budgets not reflecting that? Because I love production, but I'm taking a break because I need to rethink about whether my ethos fits in any of the companies that I, can, I want to potentially work for. Um, and I, it's like, for me, you know, broadcasters or studios to say, this is how much we care about your people. It's as easy as, as there's three things. It's as easy as scheduling efficiently, budgeting efficiently, and managing client expectations efficiently. And I know it's very hard, you know, like uh, to tell to a client, you're, you've gone above and beyond what we've agreed in our contract. There are very, very difficult uh, situations where lawyers have to get involved. But I honestly and firmly believe that if you schedule budget and manage your client expectations efficiently, the crew doesn't suffer that much. And, you know, and I think for me, like seeing all the broadcasters, some, some of the broadcasters I work with were amazing and I will work for them again, like over and over. But some of them, usually the ones that wave the bigger flag about the mental health, I'm like, you know, do you remember how you were speaking to us <laughs> a few years ago about something that you messed up? <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's revising internal structures and internal ways of working. And it's just as simple as that. And you can give me pizza on a payday or you can give me a free yoga class. If you are not it's like structuring your productions efficiently, that yoga class doesn't do anything for me. Because what I need to know is that I'm going to show up at work and I'm going to swear some really, because I cannot find, you know, another word, but I need to know that I'm going to go and work and every day is not going to be a seat show. And that's it, you know, and that, that's how my mental health is going to be protected ultimately. That I know that I come to a workplace and it's a structure and it's clear. And, you know, so then when the eventuality happens, like, because, you know, it's a creative industry, things are going to change last minute. We can deal with it with much more energy and much more efficiency. So, yeah, a little bit long, sorry. <laughs> um, I was going to ask a question, but we kind of, we're kind of covering it. So I'm going to kind of make a sort of statement and response and then hopefully you guys will, you, you will want to say more of it. Um, I, I just wanted to pick up on that last point that Paula made about broadcasters, because I think that is a really interesting point. And especially coming from children's TV series, and you see some broadcasters making really big statements about how much they care about diversity and um, encouraging diverse talent, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, all, all, all like paying people properly and treating them ethically. And, um, you know, it's it's hard to believe that they don't look at some of these budgets that some studios provide and they don't question why it's so low or how they can deliver so quickly. Um, I can't believe that they're not aware that, that there's something amiss with that um, because we all know it's not the studio who's taking the cut, it's somebody else. And I think like there is, I mean, I'm not going to say, but there's one studio in particular I can think of that does this quite frequently. And I think you know, they, they still seem to get a lot of work, despite the fact that I would say is possibly one of the worst studios I've worked for in terms of how they treat people. But I think um, a lot of this is to do with how the culture right now is. So I guess I just wanted to have a bit more of a conversation about how how this 
animation culture has kind of formed and is exploited quite often by studios and how it's, you know, not necessarily, I think it's complicated because it's, it is a culture that studios cultivate in terms of like, you know, things like we're family, we look after our staff. But then also I think it's a lot of, uh, a lot of it is formed and reinforced by expectations of younger people who come into the industry and believe it will be a certain way or that one job means more than the other. So just maybe, yeah, that was kind of like the statement, but if, if anyone was to sort of go into that, I sort of know. I was going to say uh, a lot of the time with animation, uh, it's different. It's weird. It's- it's a lot different than other jobs because people usually don't fall into it. Like it's usually a passion from yours or it's usually something that's built up since you were younger. You know, you've either, oh, I've really loved that or I've really loved drawing. I've really loved art and stuff like that. So it's something you've grown to. So um, you have such a big emotional connection to your job, which other career paths might not have, which means, um, you're always like, I want to do my best because this makes me feel good. And um, I, I want to I wanna get this new job because if I get that, I'm going to feel amazing or this is going to be great and stuff. And I feel studios, uh, I feel studios like to use that to their advantage, um, especially with um, junior staff or um, people who are coming from uni and stuff like that like you said like the whole family mentality or like making everyone feel like this is it you've made it this is the big time and stuff like that so they're more willing to you know do extra work or 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 get paid less because it's like this experience will really help me on the next one or the next one or something. Or like, if I meet this person, then this is going to be great for me in the long run. So I can put up with, you know, getting paid less money for the next few years or something like that. And because people don't speak up about it, it continues. And it's very rare that you get people who are just starting out in their career who feel comfortable enough to speak out about these kind of things because they're afraid that they'll get fired or they'll be, they'll be, um, uh, uh, p- penalized for doing so, you know, like, oh, hey, if you've if you've said X, Y, and Z, we're not going to hire you anymore, or we're going to make sure everyone doesn't hire you. You're going to get blacklisted and stuff. Um, so on the surface, it's this like happy, friendly, like studio vibe. Everyone's a family. You can chat to everyone about everything as long as it's not any critiques or criticisms, because if you do that it's going to affect you personally the individual you know and when you spiral from that that can be really horrible like because um like I was saying with it being a very emotionally charged job I guess like you take it like you take that so personally like you feel awful yourself you feel like you're not performing enough you're not performing well enough like if I'm getting told this and this it's because I'm bad I've done something wrong. You know, it's my fault. It's definitely my fault. You know, comparison is something that happens a ton in the animation world, um, especially now with Instagram and stuff like that. But we're always comparing ourselves to our peers, which is a bad thing. Um, I really try not to, but I fall into the habit so much. But like, it's very easy to compare yourself to what someone else is doing. And, um, you know, you take that 
um personally and it makes you feel like well if they're able to produce this in one day i need to be able to produce that in one day not knowing what's going on behind it and stuff like that um this might be a bit too technical for the panel but i feel like um how um animated series get produced with like um the the web browser-based softwares that are used to track how many like shots and stuff you're doing in a day or how long you've worked on specific things um ultimately um makes ultimately has a bigger toll on the animator's mental health than people realize i get that from like a production point of view um, i'm sure paula can say far more on this than i can but i get from a production point of view that helps keep track on everything but um you know as an animator that's just numbers to you that you're constantly being like i've spent this amount of time on this shot whereas this person has spent this amount of time on these shots that's horrible and you know it's something someone can use against you and if you're just starting out those numbers can be scary absolutely scary you know if you're told you need to do this and this in a week or we'll get someone who, who can you know it's just um yeah pretty much it's just it's just a bit of a vicious cycle yeah i think there's raised some really good points to you quite honest and i was having a similar conversation um yesterday actually i think as so there's a couple of levels to it so hopefully this all start to make sense and start to land but i think as um as mo's already kind of mentioned like as creatives i think we're already kind of slightly more exposed and slightly more susceptible than to a lot of the mental health issues that come in line with that because we're so in touch with what our creative practices are and we are our own worst critics like everyone is in general but especially when you as, as a creative in any shape or form like you immediately become your own worst critic and so then when you're then thrown into a situation or you walk into a situation which is something like work which is a different it's a different structure it kind of almost rubs against what we in, innately do and who we innately are as creatives having the structure having structure is definitely good but it then all becomes as Mo said about kind of like the times and the dates and the timelines it doesn't actually allow us to fully express our creativity but then also we're working for somebody else and somebody else's project so then that also then takes its own mental toll and so what originally started off as this outlet for us, this exploration for us, something that's really exciting and really fun, something that most of us would have been doing since we were children and been so influenced and excited by, starts to become almost this mental and can become this kind of like mental hold. It can become quite tricky, it can become quite dangerous and it starts to become, it can attack us in ways that it never used to before, which then has its toll, obviously has a massive toll on your mental health, especially then if you're trying to hit deadlines, it just strips away everything that was exciting about what it was that we wanted to do in the first place. And then as Mo mentioned, on top of that, we've then got that layer of constantly comparing ourselves to others and wanting to be better, wanting to be better and starting to push that to fit in line with what these structures are that we've learned within the workspace of, OK, now it needs to, to be better. It now needs to look like this. I need to achieve this by this time. I need to be hitting this deadline, this deadline and that deadline. And again, that rubs against, I think, what we know of and how it is that we all started and we then just start to see this decline in our own mental health because we start to question ourselves. We start to question our capabilities, our confidence, our abilities as creatives and whether or not we're actually even capable of doing this. So it becomes this perpetual cycle of um, kind of 
of imposter syndrome and all these other things. And, but then also for a lot of people, it then just starts to distance you from what it was that you were really passionate about to begin with. And that in itself can be really debilitating if you've known yourself to be a creative and loved to create since you were younger. And then for that to suddenly start to fall away and then you're like, but I don't know if I can do anything else because this is what I used to be passionate about. I think that can be a struggle for a lot of people as well. And again, have a toll on your mental health. But then also I think then it, it again, and I keep going back to like governments and stuff, but I think it then also is on a deeper level of firstly, I think, yeah, it's, it gets exploited by companies because again, it's just, it, our creativity then becomes this big ball of things that can make other people money. And they, there's a lot of this dangling of, well, we're a big company, so you want to work for us or you want to get in your foot in the door. So you need to take a step back or knock yourself back in terms of like whether how, how much we pay you to do this thing. I know people that have been asked to work for like big events and big companies and provide artwork for for companies that make millions of pounds, like through events that they run. And they've been asked to do like artwork for free. And when they asked for money for it, they said, well, you should just be happy that you're going to like, we're going to, you'll be able to attach your name to this thing. Like you wouldn't ask anybody else in any other industry in a non, like a non-creative based industry to do that. You wouldn't go to a banker and say, or, um, or something and say like, oh, well, your name will just be attached to working for us. So we're not going to pay you to do that. I find that this is more prevalent in creatives, in creative worlds, because they use our passion against us. They use that passion and excitement, something that they know we've always loved doing against us in a way to kind of be like, well, if you want to make money from like from this, then you kind of need to not be paid for it for a while. And then we start to agree to that. And then we start to agree to take less and less, which then other companies then continue to exploit that. But then also on that deeper level, I think that, that it, then that is also part of what has been an ongoing and systemic breakdown of the arts and creative sphere in general, but then also a lack of respect for the arts world. The moment that they started to separate art and science was going to be, it was always going to be an issue for us. And that's been, a, that's been a couple of hundred years. But as soon as you start to separate things that were always intersectional and will always continue to be intersectional, art informs science and science informs art. You can't have one without the other because you need visual language to help with descriptive language, especially on a scientific level. But so as soon as you start to break that apart, you start to pit people against each other and you start to kind of say, well, this is more important than the other. The amount of times and amount of conversations I had with people just thinking about being to university and saying, oh, I'm studying history of art. Well, art isn't important. We do maths and science. That is much more important. And I'm just like, it's such a shame that that is still the widely held view that a life in the creative sphere is not beneficial in any shape or form which is entirely incorrect like as I said you need both but as a result of that break between the two you have that lack of respect that continues to filter through the arts and therefore that means again funding is being cut left right and center that means people are willing to pay people less or continue to dangle that carrot of paying people less and people feel it feel like it's insignificant. So I feel like it means that sometimes we work even harder to make ourselves recognised. We make we work even harder to get better at what we do because we're doing it for ourselves as creators because we always want to learn and get better. But also we're doing that to make sure that we're able to have jobs, essentially. I hope that all makes sense. Paula? Yeah, it was just what, you know, what, what Mo was saying about, you know, tracking and, you know, performance in employees and stuff. Um, when you have a project, when you have 
too many people doing too, too many different things. From a production perspective, you're the person that holds the project together in terms of, you know, in terms of time and money. And you do need to track what everybody's doing to have an overview of how things are going. But um, I have seen that in, in the different studios that I worked, uh, that, that is used for different things. There are studios that are, are really about the dialogue and they really are about the tracking. And when you hit you know, a bump on the road, it's, it's, a, it's a communication in between departments to figure out you know, how to solve it or whether it's solvable, whether you have to change it in the script or you have to change it later on. Um, and there's some other studios that is a finger pointing culture and that's when it becomes very toxic. That's when people are looking at the numbers in shock and um, to see, oh, this guy's not, you know, he's just very slow. And it's like, well, he's very slow, uh, but his shots are really cool. <laughs> uh, so, so how do we measure the slowness? And I, and I think all of that, you know, is just um, how people utilize that information that a specific software is giving you is, is very ingrained in the culture of the studio and I, I only been unlucky once where, where I have been in a finger pointing culture that was so toxic, it was impossible to change. And I think it changed me. I became a person in that company that I hated. And after, you know, like I, I, I think I was not experienced enough. I think I was not strong enough that I left myself be guided by people that were very toxic and they were, you know, finger pointing all the time and putting people down all the time. And I, that depressed me a lot. And when I finished that contract, I made a promise to myself not to try to do that ever again. Um, and I think I've been a little bit successful at that, but it's, it's really, it's about the culture of the company. Because then you go to other companies and those numbers I de are dealt in a completely different manner, more constructive and healthier, definitely. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to point that out. Like in production, you're always going to be tracking. You're always going to be needing like to know where everybody's at because there's such an amount of information and ultimately you have to deliver the project on time. Um, but it really depends on the culture of the studio, how that information is used. Um, I remember one project that I worked on, I said to the producer, how do you want your reports? And he's, he, he said, I don't care about your reports. Get the work done. I trust you. And I was like, thank God, because I really didn't want to spend every Friday night making these useless reports that nobody understands. And it worked really well. You know, we had a catch up every week and I said, this is where we, this is what's going right. This is what's not going right. Help. And he would be like, yep, yeah, I'll help you. And it was such a great way of working in a way. Um, so yeah, everything, like I said, it's just a, you know, you can track in every project is how different studios use that to their own advantage that makes a difference. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of the back of that. I think like it's interesting um, because I, I, I agree, like I think it's inevitable that work will be tracked, but I think it is just how it's tracked and how that information is treated. And often I think a lot of these things stem from the fact that sometimes production and creative stuff separate themselves from one another like it's not a collaborative process they just like one side is seeing one thing about the other and nobody has those conversations and meets in the middle and it, you know I do think that comes from the studio down I think like the owners the studio owners like I think they don't you know it should be collaborative it should never be like 
you're being told what to do all the time by one party or the other. You know, if they were always, like it's like Paolo was saying earlier, like when, you know, as long as you plan in advance, it's like, well, as a creative member of staff, if I'm working with Paola, if I communicate to her with time that I'm falling behind, then there is something to be done about that. But if I'm told that I'm, which has happened to me, I've been told not to talk to certain departments while working in TV series, that I'm not allowed to talk to a different department then it's, why is there a go between when it should be a seamless run, really, between each group of people? Um, and it's interesting we're talking about this because it was a point I made on Twitter um, a couple of weeks ago because I was saying, like, I've noticed what seems to be a shift to the more sort of um, a style of working that sort of exists quite prevalently in, in the Americas, it feels like, you know, this, this idea of doing things like on shotgun and tracking everyone's movements, having very regimented departments like a layout department, a rigging department, a background department. Like that to me seems very American because, you know, I started working in animation about 11 years ago, 10, 11 years ago. And, you know, this, the cell action projects like the Charlie and Lola's, the Sarah and Ducks, all this kind of stuff. It's basically like everyone getting get your hands dirty because you don't have the budget to separate to just recruit all these people um and yes there's definitely aspects which to that which are slightly more challenging but then it also makes it more of a creative experience and I was just sort of flagging this on Twitter because I said you know I seem I seem to be noticing this cultural shift from studios but also from um sort of more junior staff coming into the industry where it's like I called it like animation snobbery where there seems to be like a hierarchy of projects. And like, if you, if you work on something with like an American look to it, like it looks like it works on Cartoon Network, then you're above everyone else and everyone else can, you know, are just making trash TV. And it's this weird thing. It's like, we, you know, our value doesn't come from our work and that's, you know, our paying work anyway, you know. Um, and it's nice that you care about your job, but that is what is rife for exploitation and, that kind of attitude and then holding everyone else to that kind of account we're saying like we're all lucky to be here we're all in this you should definitely be grateful for this um and I just wanted to also say about um another thing I've noticed and I had this conversation I'm not going to say which studio again but I had a conversation about this last year quite publicly um and I do find as well one of the main factors in this is that the resistance to taking responsibility for paying people a proper wage from studios, like employers saying, well, it's not up to me to tell you how much you should be paid. Um, you should be telling me how much you deserve to be paid. It's, it's, you know, that's not how you get a good, healthy workforce. That's not how you encourage people to do their best for you. You know, when I, you know, I've been in places where I found out somebody's getting paid like £200 a week more than me, you know, or, and especially if that person happens to be male, then you're sitting there going like, well, then how do I approach this? Who do I talk to about this? Why is he getting paid that much more than me? And it's happened to so many of my friends as well. And I think studios do have to start taking responsibility for that. They do need to start looking at their own budgets and how they pay people because this is unsustainable. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's like Bimpy said, I know, I know so much of this is linked to wider issues. It's linked to politics. It's linked to the economy. It's linked to, you know, international relations, all this kind of stuff. But there are little things that we can do, little steps we can take to make it a more fairer and healthier place for everybody to work.
I'm going to just add my little tidbit to all the amazing things you guys have said. Um, just picking up from what Mo said in the beginning, um, I understand that feeling of feeling kind of left behind almost and having to work a little bit extra, like just to be on the same level as my sort of white counterparts. I feel like I'm always like a step behind and it's always that sort of conversation that you feel like, am I or can I say this and will this be perceived in the right way hopefully fingers crossed do I have the like the permission or like um will I ostracize myself in my workplace if I say certain things that I see that are wrong because I haven't been in the company long enough um I haven't had as much years experience but as a as a person who's got experience elsewhere can I say these things? Can I flag these things up? Can I say you're wrong for doing that? And I think I find it a lot easier to have these kind of conversations and check people who are more on a similar level to me or maybe one above, but I can't, I couldn't say you're wrong to my boss. I don't think even if you see something wrong, there is a way of, I've got to sort of tailor myself or the way that I've got to, put words together so no one kind of gets a little butthurt I shouldn't say butthurt but um just a way of putting um your view across without crossing the line in their eyes and I think that's also one thing that oh is a, a real struggle and a real battle just figuring out how to talk in the workspace as a whole as a whole, as someone who hasn't really come from a background of p parents who work in offices or anything like that. My parents, my dad's a builder. So the way that he works and how the working world looks for him is completely different. So there is no sort of uh, education from there that I would have received to like prepare me for what the office is like, let alone what animation industry is like or um just tv in general there there isn't there isn't that education available so yes I agree with all of you <laughs> there quickly is but in there because I just yeah. think that's a really good point like I think that's sorry I know Pally you're gonna come I'm just gonna quickly say this like the fact that I think like people who work in animation tend to be from quite sheltered upbringing it's quite specific backgrounds middle-class backgrounds where they don't mix with people from different cultures and I do notice this like because for me my mum's very blunt she just says what she thinks like it's not it's a very like Asian way to talk and I think like a lot of like when I meet people from other parts of the world generally like you're saying like people from the Mediterranean perhaps like I've had friends from like Greece and Cyprus and they just say it it's not this British like let me go around the block and come back before I sort of half tell you what I mean. Um, I don't like the food. I'm just going to call it interesting, which is the thing my mum hates the most. Um, and I think there is definitely that, there needs to be that understanding of the cultural differences between people, especially like, you know, first generation British people from other backgrounds that this kind of, uh, you know, there, there is a way to be professional, but there is a way to be forthright as well. Um, it's not one or the other. Sorry, Pam. It's fine. It's just like, obviously, because I have, you know, the producer 
like them on, on the back of my head. Um, but you were talking about, you know, that, that in your experience, sometimes you work in studios where departments are not allowed to talk to each other. So this is, from my production perspective, I really like, you know, when departments are very structured. Um, and I think uh, one of the things that studios underestimate a lot is communication and how you communicate. And I always try to put lines of communication that are very clear. And to me, those hierarchies are very important because sometimes you have people in the project that are so into the little square that they're doing. Like, I'm going to put a storyboard artist example that is fiction, but they're doing the storyboard, they're doing the storyboard and then suddenly they say, oh, I'm just going to be doing this differently and, and I'm just going to talk to somebody else, get their opinion, go back and then do something that is, goes completely against all the lines of communication that you have from that point above um, um, that are making what that person is doing completely inconsistent with the show and the pipeline. So for me, like, you know, I, I personally don't like when people just go and do their own thing and have their own chats without consulting with production, because usually the decisions that you make and that you pass to, for, to the crew come from previous conversations that you had with the clients, with the directors, with the people that control the money and all that stuff. So when people just go and run wild and then, you know, uh, beyond your pipeline and beyond, you know, the guidelines that you have established to produce that show, it comes back to you as a, as a big, big mess that you have to sort out. And that could have been avoided if the person had come to you, asked you the question, and then you said, Yes, that's completely fine. No, actually, that's not fine because we had a conversation with the client two weeks ago where we have, you know, this is no longer allowed in our show and, you know, um, and we cannot proceed that way sort of thing. So, but at the same time, you know, I think uh, that's why it's so important that production leads the communication ways. I think I love working with coordinators and supervisors um, because they are the eyes and ears on the floor of their department. And I, I love building a relationship of trust because you know that when things are not going well, they're going to come to you and they're going to, you know, uh, put on the, t on the table, like, this is not going well. What can we do about this? Um, but I'm also aware that there's many studios where that communication doesn't exist. <laughs> And, you know, uh, and production doesn't want to have anything to do with artists. That's not my problem. The information that we're passing on is wrong. Okay, you know, and I'm, and I'm just like, whoa, you know, no, this com communication is key. And this is a team effort. And I'm not going to be talking directly. Uh, as a line producer, I may not be talking directly to a junior animator that have just started in the studio because there's too many people. But you can bet your money that I'm going to be talking to the supervisor and the coordinator every week to make sure that everybody in their department is okay. Um, so that's, you know, and sometimes I feel that artists get a little bit confused with this. And, and I suppose I just had a, a personal experience because I had someone in my studio that just, just enjoyed saying that she was not allowed to talk to anybody. And, and I was like, and then, you know, I have upper management. Why don't you allow this person to talk to anybody? And I was like, no, no, this conversation has completely been taken out of context because, you know, we're having dailies every day. It's just like we decided to not talk about a certain, you know, aspect of the production until we have checked with the client how they wanted to proceed with that accent. So it's, I'm not saying don't talk to people. I'm just saying don't pass information on that may not be accurate because then it's going to be like create a lot of confusion. So let's wait until we have the accurate information to pass, you know, uh, to all of the teams. So then, you know, we can all be in the same place. Um, so, but again, communication is so important. And I just feel 
that sometimes, you know, there's not enough emphasis uh, from studios to encourage their production teams and their creative teams to talk to each other, to work together, and not to have that division that production hates artists and artists hate production. Because uh, that happens a lot in the industry, and I'm not really sure why, because I think every person's role in a production is key, and nobody should be undermining each other. Like, um, yeah, like nobody should be undermining each other. Right? For me, the junior animator that is doing Ray Takes is as important as, you know, the producer who's just like crying his eyes out because we run out of money. <laughs> you know, like it's just everybody's so important in an animation production. And yeah, I, I would like to see that changing, that culture changing. I, I am trying, but it's very difficult sometimes. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, I'm going to move on to the, the last question because we can go on for forever, genuinely, on these, on these questions. But um, do you think many people realise that what we say during the podcast is still subject to a lot of self-editing prior to re the recorded conversation? Um, we'll go with Mo. I was going to say probably not. Um, I think it's very easy for people to take what people say on the surface and think that's their whole character. Um, uh, there's actually a word for this. Um, I, I'll, I'll try and remember as we're talking, but like it's very human nature to think of someone as what they say and that's their whole thing. So, you know, in these, in these panels where like, you know, we're talking and we're speaking up about like the things that have happened on our own experiences, it might be hard for someone to realize they've had vulnerable periods. They've had periods where, you know, they've been quite afraid to say anything or they've had periods where they've been like, I don't know what the person next to me is thinking about me or something, you know? So I feel like people who are watching these panels, I'd want them to go away with the thought that, you know, everyone's had the exact same feelings you have, you know, those feelings that you've had of self, um, self critique and those feelings that you've had that you might not be good enough. Everyone on this panel has had those as well, you know, and it's like, this is just like a screenshot of our lives. And like, this is the moment where we talk about it. This is, this is why I, I, I'm not a particular fan of Instagram because you get to put the best version of your best self on the best day up and we take that as your whole life where, and then that can make other people feel, you know, horrible or worse about it and stuff. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'd, um, there, there's a lot, like you said, there's a lot that gets censored in a, in the sense where it's like, you have to think about what you want to say and you have to think about how you want to say it because like, you never want to just say this person did this, and I hate him or something because that's never the case. You know, it's never, it's never that black and white. Usually it's always a gray area that everyone's trying to model through and you're trying to specifically voice your own opinion and experience while understanding that um, there's different sides to this. Like it's actually, for example, it's actually really great powers on this talk because you're from production. Whereas the, whereas um, Hodden's also from production and the rest of us, on on that side so there's been things we've said in this conversation where you've you've been able to express the other side of the thing whereas you know some people would take it away from it's just like that whole thing was like we hate production like <laughs> get rid of them and stuff it's like no no it's never that black and white or something it's always a gray area and everyone's just expressing their own opinions and yeah no i'm gonna jump in there um personally yes i have self-edited because still working in the animation industry 
So you can't really say names and you can't point fingers because in a way this goes out to the masses and is available to everybody. And you don't want to be that person who name calls and says something about someone who that could be actually quite detrimental to them later on. You could have had a bad experience with someone, but that might not be the case um, for someone else. And I think it's that annoying thing that we are adults and we know that just because our experience with an individual doesn't mean that is their complete character. Same as what Mo was saying. It's not that individual's complete character. It's just unfortunate that you guys might have just butt heads and are maybe unable to work together. Um, and on top of that, the industry is quite small. So there is only so many people you can start naming to then be perceived as a difficult person and a person who um, is unable to work with other people. Um, so yeah, there, those are things that do play on my mind uh, and why I don't say or don't speak as much and stick to the hosting <laughs> of this panel because honestly, I know myself. Um, once I do start talking, I probably wouldn't um, stop myself, but um, Bimpy. Oh, I didn't realize I was off mute already. Sorry, <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm a great believer in the the like words have power, and I think when we do things like panels, I think it's about also recognizing the position that we're in, at least in terms of how we can also do these things to inspire people. And so I feel like I a lot of the things I say is more to be kind of like, okay, this is my worldview of this, that, and the other, but in the hopes that it gets people thinking more than anything, but then also allows them to have conversations outside of that. But then also just to be visible so they can see that we like, at least that people who look like me are like here and that we're in these spaces, that we are having these conversations and that we're not all just kind of, well, for a while, I guess a lot of us were sitting in isolation, having these conversations with ourselves, but um, that we are talking about these things, that we're not walking into these industries and pretending to all be blind to what's actually going on. And that hopefully this gives people comfort in feeling like, okay, well, firstly, there is a community out there of other people that are like me that are having these conversations that want to have these conversations. And I can also be having these conversations as well and hopefully that people still feel inspired to go into these spaces because likewise I've met people that don't really want to go into the industry when they saw that they were going to be the only person that looked like them in these spaces and that's a very real fear and worry and I completely understand why so I kind of I kind of speak to hopefully still so inspire in some shape or form but then also to kind of just I think it's just important to be able to discuss these things critically and what I was saying about transparency as well I think that applies to us as much as possible as well um and like it's important for us I think to be able to discuss this amongst ourselves because it helps us feel know that we are supported in spaces where we probably haven't felt entirely supported I think I think it's really I think yeah I think it's been really important Paula for me, this is, I don't know, like I, I am very thankful to you and Tanya for bringing me along to these chats because um, I do love animation. I do love telling stories and I do love every single thing and craft that every single person in the production brings to a series or a film or a commercial. Um, and to me, 
I just, this year, I, I decided I was going to give myself space and time to think and not jump into like big productions anymore because I was just exhausted. Um, and I think this space has provided me with an environment where I can regain that passion of why I love animation, of why I love working with different people that think and look different from what I, you know, do, do think and look. And then it's, it's just, it's kind of giving me a little bit of a, like my passion back in a way to know that there's so many beautiful people out there that they are so skilled and good at what they do because I was just losing that as well and and obviously when I speak you know when I read your questions and and I try to answer the best I can um, I do it from my experience and I am aware that maybe uh, from my experience and from my, I don't know what's the word, my way of thinking, my, the, my ideal self, like how will I ideally do things? But sometimes, you know, again, I just, I just want to mention culture, like, you know, the things that we say here are, are, are all experiences and some of them are the theory that we carry with us. But putting that in practice in the different studios where we work is very different because um, the culture of that studio is going to dictate a lot how you can operate within, you know, your, your ethos, your way of being and the way you are sort of thing. So some panelists may say, oh, she's saying that but actually I work in a production, you know, with her, she's a real bitch. And I probably was, to be honest. Um, but it's just because sometimes, you know, you are, you are in the middle of, of, you know, a studio that is imposing a culture on you and trying to sort things out and dealing with impossible things that they're asking you to do. And then somebody asks you, can I talk to you on my holidays? And you're like, ah, not now, because <laughs> I am just so busy. So, so for me, this is, I feel like this space has allowed, to be, has allowed me to present myself in the way I, I, I feel I am. And, you know, and, and listening to you all has been great. And in terms of editing myself, what I say, yes. Um, I don't name studios because they all know each other. And ultimately, I do have to put a roof over my head and I need to pay my bills. But I don't know. It's getting to that point in my age, in my career, that I'm starting to think whoever doesn't want to work with me is fine. And I, and I remember my auntie uh, a couple of years ago, like I had a total meltdown. I was like, why am I doing this to myself? This is very stressful. I want to work in a shop. And she was like, you know, all of these things that you're projecting on yourself, all of those pressures that you're putting on yourself to try to be the Joan of Arc that is going to save all the crew <laughs> that you're managing at the moment. She's like, you don't have to do that. And the older you get, the less you're going to care about what people think of you and stuff because it won't matter. And I think I reached that point um, last year. I was like, you know what? I just don't care. Yes, you have to be... I don't name studios because also like Bimpe was saying, you know, or, or Hodan, um, some people work well in a studio and some people don't. It's a lot about chemistry and, and the way you like. So it's, it's no point saying this studio is horrible. I mean, there are a few that definitely you have to be careful about, but I, I don't say that anymore because I'm just like, you know, it, re it just really depends on the experience. It didn't work for me, but there's, you know, there's 99% people in the studio that seem happy. It just didn't work out for me and I'm never going to work with them again because I don't believe in the, you know, in what they're selling me. Um, but that's just me. So I don't think there's a point in, in, in that, in, in naming names or um, 
yeah. So that I don't know, just very convoluted answer. Sorry, Tanya. Yeah, I, I agree. I think like so much of this and the conversations we have on this on these podcasts. Like, I think I hope the main takeaway has been that people people have different opinions and people learn to respect each other a bit more. I think for me, that's always been the key point is, is lack of respect that I feel a lot of the time. And it seems like such a basic thing. I just, I'm always sitting there going like, I don't understand why you can't provide me with this, like this basic level of courtesy and kindness, which is all I'm asking for. And I think that is really important when we have these conversations for people to pe- for people to show respect and kindness to people who feel like they're really sticking their neck out and feel like they are the most vulnerable, which is a lot of the people who participate in these panels. But simultaneously, I think, I mean, like Mary and I had a long conversation about this the other day, and I've had so many conversations with Podden about it, um, and Paolo actually. Um, but like to have a little bit of kindness and empathy for people who don't understand these issues and are trying to figure it out. Like, I think, like, I've heard a couple of examples of people who've just sort of blacklisted people for saying sort of slightly the wrong thing. And for me, it's like this thing where it's like, we, I think we do have to appreciate that there are there are certain times where it's like generational or regional, where people don't actually just understand they're being insulting or they don't understand that they're not tackling this the right way. And even though it shouldn't fall on us to sort of point that out to them, I think there is a way to do that where you can just you can do it without expending much energy and just go you know what I'm, I'm not really comfortable with you saying like that and I do think in most cases people will actually be quite understanding I think there are we are lucky that in animation the majority of people are very nice and try to be quite liberally minded and open-minded but I think this is such a big political conversation that everybody's having at the moment I mean debate even whether or not you can call it political but you know British identity is such a conf- such a confusing point in time we're all trying to figure it out and I think that is the, the way you respect people is the fact that you understand that people are trying to figure it out and you're trying to undo a lot of sort of intergenerational conditioning and uh, centuries of propaganda but um, yeah it's just what I would say just quickly to add what Tanya was saying as well I think the yeah the learning aspect I think is really important and I know that whenever I walk into these podcasts or any other ones I've done before I walk into it with the mindset of like I want to learn something as well I know that I've got my own worldview I know I've got my own opinions like what is what seems true to me but I'm also I also want to walk into these spaces and learn something from other people because I don't see what everything looks like I don't see what everything looks like for everybody else and I think again as Tanya said it's about just having that respect for each other like that's how things are really going to be pushed forward and progressed like we really need to be willing to listen to each other even if those have there are some that have very extreme opinions that (laughs) it's just like well this is this might be difficult and then you have to question is it worth doing this to my mental health is my safety at risk then it's like or maybe not but I think being able to have as I said these critical discussions and we don't always have to agree we don't always have to see everything but if we're willing to walk into these situations to learn something I think that is vital and I think that's really really important and that's what's going to kind of again continue to help us as a community and as people in general. And with that um, I'm gonna end the panel here 
Um, thank you all for partaking in this conversation. And yeah, thank you. This has been Visible Visuals. <laughs>